Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcia. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good to be with you. I was on the Southern Civil Rights Pilgrimage these last nine days. We got home late last night and uh, missed you guys, but happy to be back. Um, I want to take just a moment and try to give you a snapshot of our trip. It won't really do justice to the journey that we were on, um, but I wanted to at least uh, give you a quick overview. Um, We started in New Orleans and then worked our way up uh, to Jackson, Mississippi, through the Mississippi Delta, up into Memphis, Tennessee, and then down into Alabama, where we went to Montgomery and then Selma and uh, finished in Birmingham. And really, um, the movement of the trip was designed to follow the narrative of the black struggle for liberation and reconciliation um, from slavery through segregation into the modern day. And so we were guided um, by a fellow named John Williams from the Center uh, for Racial Reconciliation out of Pasadena. And uh, John was an incredible host and guide for us. And uh, let me just give you a a couple quick snapshots um, from our trip that give you an idea of the kinds of things we were doing. So starting in New Orleans, we had an opportunity to learn the history of the slave trade there. Uh, we did a walking tour uh, with, a, with a guy who's been there on the ground for many decades now, learning about the, the largest slave port in the United States and um, the ways in which that city is still haunted by the ghosts of slavery today. Uh, then we had a chance to go up to Memphis and visit the Civil Rights Museum, which is housed at the Lorraine Motel, the exact spot spot where Dr. King was assassinated. And so that spot there with the wreath is um, where he was killed. And uh, the Civil Rights Museum that's there is incredibly powerful um, and moving. We went from there to Jackson, Mississippi, where we got to hear stories from 
several civil rights legends, the folks that are sitting down in the front row that are all in their 80s or 90s now, who um, were gracious enough to spend a day with us telling us their stories um, of <clears throat> marching, of sitting in, of uh, riding the bus when they weren't supposed to and not riding the bus when they were supposed to. The one guy on the far right sitting down, Hezekiah, was arrested and sent to jail 100 109 times simply for using the bathroom he wasn't supposed to or sitting at the counter he wasn't supposed to. So these legends uh, shared their lives and their stories with us, and it was unbelievable. Uh, we went to the Peace and Justice Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, which really um, focuses in on the story of uh, lynching. In, in the United States. And I would say personally, along with the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, this is the most powerful uh, museum experience I've ever had. Uh, each one of those memorials that you see hanging from the ceiling above represents a county in the US where um, black Americans were lynched. Um, incredibly moving experience. In Birmingham, we had an opportunity to meet with the fifth little girl, as she's called, uh, Sarah Rudolph Collins. And this was at the site of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, where four black little girls were killed one Sunday morning. Um, Sarah was there in the restroom with them, and she lost an eye from the shrapnel, but lived to tell about it, and now in her 80s, um, has devoted the rest of her days to telling this story, and we got to meet with her. And then finally, uh, we got to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where this uh, march from Selma to Montgomery began and uh, to follow the lead um, of our, our black elders who have so resiliently uh, resisted <clears throat> the injustice and oppression that they have experienced um, for, for many centuries in our country now. And so um, it is so hard to summarize and encapsulate everything that, that we went through, but I come home um, incredibly grateful for the opportunity to go, grateful for your prayers, and uh, grateful for our team from, from Antioch here that went along as a learning community. So this is our group. There were 20 of us um, with our guides. You can see we've got some uh, middle schoolers all the way up to some grandpas and grandmas and everything in between. And uh, we had an amazing time together. So who's who's here from the trip? Who made a, hey, look at you guys. More than the first service. Yeah. <laughs> we got home at 1 a.m. this morning. So, um, and in addition to it being powerful um, and provocative, um, it was also just a really unifying and um, enjoyable time together. Uh, they do food real good in the South, if you didn't know that. So we ate a lot, and we ate well. I kid you not, I weighed in this morning. I gained nine pounds this week. So that's, I didn't know you could do that. Like, that's the opposite of giving birth, I think. And uh, so I'm bringing home memories and other things. But um, Grateful for the chance. Uh, any of those folks who raised their hands would, would love to chat with you to share some of their stories and impressions and that sort of thing. Um, it really was a wonderful time. So um, we're going to dive into week six, week six of our fall vision series that's entitled The Whole Gospel. 
both and faith in an either or world. And really, this is a series um, that's designed to help us understand the unique distinctions that God has given us as a church and what it is that makes Antioch Antioch. And so we're using this chart, which is one of the ways that I've found helpful to explain sort of what our church is all about. Uh, For the past couple hundred years in the United States, you've really had these two primary streams within Protestant Christianity, which we might call mainline Protestantism and evangelicalism. Um, If neither of those terms mean anything to you, that's okay. You don't need to know them. But what I've found is that if you pay attention, that you'll find that most churches uh, fit pretty nicely under one of these headings um, in terms of the aspects of Christian faith and practice they tend to emphasize. And in this series, what we're doing is asking the question, what if we didn't have to choose a side? What if we took, rather than an either-or approach, What if we took a both-and approach to the Christian faith? What if we didn't have to settle for just one half of the gospel? What would it look like to be a church that's chasing after the whole gospel? And so that's what we're doing in this series. We've covered several uh, several subjects so far. This morning, we come to the subject of sin. Yay! So... The easiest way to understand sin is to look at what God's world was like before sin and what it will be like after sin. So in the Bible, the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, give us a picture of a world without sin. And the word that the Bible uses to describe a world without sin is shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace. And uh, the Christian philosopher Cornelius Plantinga uh, sums it up really nicely, and uh, I'll just read how he describes what shalom is all about. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. I love that definition. Shalom is the way things ought to be. In the story of the Bible, the world begins as a place of shalom. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. And shalom is all about relationships. Relationships between God and humanity, between humans and ourselves, between genders, between classes, between races, between nations, and with the rest of God's creation, all of these relationships are rightly ordered, and they're good, and they're life-giving. That's the picture that we have of shalom. But then, only two chapters into the story of the Bible, this thing called sin shows up, and it ruins everything. Here's how Platinga explains what sin is and how God feels about it. If shalom is God's design for creation and redemption, sin is human vandalism of these great realities. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. 
God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Okay, so helpful framing. In the biblical story, shalom is the way things ought to be and sin is the destruction or the vandalism of shalom. Sin is what comes in and severs the relationships in the world as it ought to be. Humanity's relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, with the rest of creation Sin is whatever pulls those relationships apart. And because God loves shalom, God hates sin. Anything that disrupts the good design of his creation. And because God hates sin, he takes it very seriously and we're told that one day he's going to rid the world of sin entirely and shalom will be restored. Now, the question is, is that good news? Or is it bad news? Do I want God to thoroughly deal with all the sin in the world? Well, that depends, right? If we're talking about the sinful, broken systems of the world that are marked by violence and greed and destruction of shalom, then yes, I want God to rid the world of war and terrorism and poverty and addiction and cancer and racism and human trafficking. I want God to judge Hitler and bin Laden and the KKK and Hamas and systems that empower them. I want God to deal severely with the sinful brokenness of this world. But I also know that sin isn't just something that's out there. Sin is also something that's in here, right? It's not just that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's that I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. And so if God is going to deal completely with sin and restore shalom, then he's going to have to deal with me too. So this is where we begin to understand that there are at least two dimensions of this thing called sin. And I'll call them individual sin and structural sin. There's other labels we could use. But individual sin means all the ways that I personally reject God's right ordering of relationships in my life. It's all the ways that I fail to love God and love my neighbor as I love myself. It's my greed, my hypocrisy, my bitterness, my lack of kindness and compassion and self-control. We're familiar, most of us, with this idea of individual sin. But then you have this thing called structural sin, the next dimension of sin, and that's the sin in the world. Sometimes shalom is shattered not just because of one or two specific individuals, but because entire systems and structures and societies are sinful. And this is a really tough idea for lots of American Christians in particular because we tend to be so individualistic in the way that we see the world, in the way that we see ourselves, and in the way that we see the gospel. But all throughout the Bible, what you're going to find is that God deals not just with individual people, but God constantly is dealing with groups of people, with communities with tribes, with nations, with churches, with families, sometimes the entire human race all at once. 
So think about all the times that the Old Testament prophets speak the word of God. They almost never have a message for an individual. God's words are almost always for a group, a tribe, or a nation. And it's not just the Old Testament. Think about the letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation. He writes to these groups, these communities. And in some of them, he confronts them for specific sins that they collectively are responsible for. And you've got to think that in some of those Old Testament nations or in some of those New Testament churches, there's at least one or two folks that are going, yeah, I don't think that's me. And it doesn't quite seem fair that God deals with communities and groups rather than individuals, but apparently God doesn't have a view of humanity that's as individualistic as we do. So we have at least two dimensions of sin, the individual and the structural. And if we plug these into our chart, then I think, again, as a overgeneralization, we could say that mainline Christianity tends to be more worried about structural sin, while evangelical Christianity tends to be more worried about individual sin. Okay, so if you asked a Christian on the left, how do we get rid of all the sin in the world? They would likely start at the top, so to speak. They would talk about these corrupt systems of greed and violence that exploit the poor and the oppressed. They'd talk about policies that harmed under, harm under-resourced communities and corporations that are ravaging the planet. And they would say that if you could change those systems, you could change the world. But if you ask somebody on the right, how do we get rid of all the sin in the world? They would probably say that it starts with the individual. That we need to change human hearts. If everybody in the world could just meet Jesus. If everyone could know the love and acceptance of their heavenly father if everyone could experience the liberation of having their sins forgiven and finding their identity in Christ, if we could just change hearts, then we could change the world. Now, now which is true? Which is right? Is the problem with the systems and structures of the world, or is the problem with individuals? And of course, the answer is yes that the Bible has a view of sin that both has to do with individuals and has to do with structures and systems. And so this is hard, especially for those of us whose faith has primarily been formed in the white evangelical church. But think about it like this. And since this is the world I've been steeped in for the last week and a half, we'll, we'll talk about the sin of racism for a moment. If you take an individual person who is racist, they have the power to inflict serious harm on another. They can use um, that hatred to severely harm another person, emotionally or even physically. And we would all recognize that discrimination and violence done, especially based on the color of someone's skin, is sin. But what if that person 
that racist person, was in charge of writing the laws for a particular society? What if that person was in charge of building companies and corporate cultures? What if they were in charge of creating policies that guided different institutions? Then you start to see that that sin of racism is no longer confined to the individual, but like a disease, it begins to spread to the institution and to the system. And even if that individual dies and the decades go by and the world changes and becomes a much less racist place over the times, those laws may not change. Or maybe some of them change, but not all of them. And so even though the people who put them in place are no longer in power, the systems and the structures prevail. Systems and structures such as schools, governments, corporations, and churches. We start to understand systemic racism. In the case of our nation, our nation that we love, and that we're so grateful for the chance to live in, we know that the brokenness and the sinfulness of our history isn't just isolated to a few racist people that did a few racist things, right? It's about entire systems and structures that were designed to only work if indigenous and African Americans could be considered less than humans. That, that they could be captured and bought and sold and trafficked and traded and used and abused and disposed of as if they were things rather than people. This stuff was baked into the core of our country. It was codified, codified in our constitution. This is not just the problem of a few sinful individuals. There are broken sinful systems. And this is hard stuff to talk about, but if we're going to follow Jesus, then we have to talk about it. Because the sin that Jesus detests, the sin that Jesus died for, the sin that Jesus promised he's going to one day do away with forever, infects both individuals and structures. So in Luke 18, we have a really helpful teaching from Jesus that helps us wrap our mind around this in a really, really significant way. He's telling a parable in Luke 18 to a group of people that are having a hard time seeing themselves as sinners. In verse 9, we're told, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, so Luke can't be any clearer here about who Jesus is speaking to, right? There's nothing subtle about this. Who's Jesus talking to? A group of people who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So that's who he's speaking to. Here's the parable that Jesus tells them. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So two guys go into church one Sunday morning, so to speak, and we aren't told much about these two guys. In fact, the only thing we're told about them is what they do for a living. One of them is a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling religious class, 
and the other is a tax collector who's also Jewish, but he works for the Roman government who at that time was ruling over the Jewish people in their own land. And so a tax collector's job was to go around and take money from his fellow Jews and bring that money to the oppressive Roman government. So to his fellow Jews, the tax collector is seen as a traitor, as a sellout. He's working for the man. Okay, so these two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go to church to pray. And by the way, this is a parable, so we're not meant to uh, assume that it actually happened. But since Jesus is God in the flesh, he does give us a sneak peek of the kinds of prayers that God receives over the years, right? Like Jesus is like, you wouldn't believe the things some people pray. (laughs) So... Uh, Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So maybe not a real prayer, but based on a true story. Um, Now remember who Jesus is telling this story to, those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. So he's clearly coming after these guys. But the problem with them and the problem with this Pharisee is not necessarily that the Pharisee's living a sinful life. It's probably true what he says, that he really is living a very moral, by-the-book, religious life. The Pharisee knows that God takes sin seriously, and so, so does he. So he doesn't steal, he doesn't do evil, he doesn't cheat on his wife, he doesn't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. He even goes without food for two days a week and he tithes 10%, not just of his net income, but of his gross income. This guy is living a solid, upstanding, righteous life and he is proud of it. So that's how he prays. But then in verse 13, we hear the prayer of the other guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So this guy, when he prays, he's not proud of himself. He's disgusted with himself. And what's interesting is, it's not because he's like a murderer or a rapist, or a child abuser, or something like that. It's not because he drank too much and did something really stupid last night. He stands before God, and he pleads for mercy because he knows that he's a sinner. So what is the sin that he's bringing to God in prayer? Well, Jesus literally has only told us one thing about this man. And it's what he does for a living. He takes money from an oppressed group of people and he puts it in the pockets of their oppressors. Now this guy wasn't doing anything illegal. In fact, his job was to enforce the law of the land and make sure everybody paid their taxes. And yet he is overcome with grief at his participation in a system of justice, injustice and oppression. Here's what I think we see in this story. See, the first man, the Pharisee, only sees sin through the individual lens. 
He says, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't cheat on my wife. So I don't have any sin to confess. But the second man understands that sin is also structural. He also didn't kill anyone and didn't cheat on his wife, but he sees how what he does from nine to five, while it may provide for his family, is actually an assault on shalom. What if you were a British shipbuilder in the 1750s? And the ships that you built were used to transport kidnapped Africans across the Atlantic Ocean. What if you were a seamstress in Virginia in the 1850s? And the cotton you used to sew beautiful dresses was picked by enslaved Africans who were forced to work in horrible conditions without pay. Or what if you were a school teacher in Texas in the 1950s and the only teaching job you could get was at a segregated elementary school where little black boys and girls weren't allowed? What do you do when you find yourself participating in a system of sin and injustice? Well, you can be like the Pharisee and say, hey, I didn't make the rules. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just working hard and taking care of my family. Or you could be like the tax collector and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know what to do about it. I need this job, but I acknowledge that this job and this life exists within a broken and unjust system. And God, I know that grieves your heart. So have mercy on me. Here's how Jesus ends the parable in verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what we see in this story is that Jesus confronts the person who is only willing to talk about individual sin. But he affirms the person who is also willing to confess their participation in structural sin. And strangely enough, the moral of this story is be like the tax collector. Take a good, hard look at the systems, structures, and institutions that you're part of. Humble yourself and confess your sin. Why? Because confessing our sin is one of the most Christian things we can do. At the very heart of the invitation of the gospel is the acknowledgement that we aren't the way we're supposed to be. 
And so Christians amongst all people ought to be known as those who are the first to confess our sins, the first to admit when we're wrong, the first to acknowledge our faults and failures in the past and in the present. Confessing your sin is one of the most Christian things you can do. And so this is why we practice this here together every Sunday morning. And when we pray our prayers of confession, we pray them in the plural. We pray, we have sinned against you through thought, word, and deed. Have mercy on us and forgive us. We don't pray simply as individuals, we pray as members of a community. Corporate confession is an exercise in remembering that sin isn't just individualistic. We acknowledge and renounce the presence and reality of all kinds of sins which we're connected to and complicit in. Which is hard to do and we'd rather not. But Jesus himself actually modeled this for us and he taught his disciples to pray this way. Right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer, prayer that we pray every week, Jesus prays, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. Jesus, the one human being who's without sin, who lived a morally perfect life, identifies himself with the sins of humanity. He prays in the plural with us, seeking the Father's forgiveness for sins of which he was personally innocent. And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins, he's teaching us that sin isn't just individual, it's also structural. He's teaching us to take responsibility for the sins in which we are complicit even if we aren't personally guilty. Last year here at Antioch, we hosted an evening of learning and lament around the racist history of Central Oregon, around the treatment of indigenous and black and brown people in our state's history. We acknowledged and told the truth about the reality that there's a reason Bend is 91% white. That's not an accident or a coincidence. That's a premeditated uniformity. In fact, one of our civil rights hosts that we spent time with this week looked at our group coming in and said, you are the most segregated group I've ever spoken to. And we looked around and go, we're not segregated. <laughs> we can't even coexist in the same state. And so we hosted an evening of learning and lamenting this history. And the purpose of doing that wasn't to solve the problem of racism, but to confess it. And to confess the brokenness in the world and that brokenness that's in us. Why? because confessing our sin is one of the most Christian things we can do. So our hope at Antioch is to be a church that sees sin the way God sees it, 
a church that loves shalom and therefore hates sin. Anything that vandalizes or violates the joyful, life-giving, righteous relationships that God desires. Which means we're gonna be a church that deals with both individual and structural sin. We're gonna pay attention to the ways in which we're not the people we ought to be and the world isn't the way it ought to be. And I'll tell you, that puts us in an awkward space at times because we're committed to both personal holiness and social justice. That doesn't fit nicely in either camp. But that's where we're, we, we feel convinced that God has called us to live because the gospel of Jesus is way bigger than any of us realized. And it's big enough to deal with both. And one day God is going to come and he's gonna make the world new again. A new heavens and a new earth are coming. Shalom will be restored. And one of the ways that we resist sin in the present day is by boldly proclaiming that this is not the way it's supposed to be. So confessing our sin, telling the truth, both individually and structurally, is an act of resistance and an act of hope and an act of worship. That we know we aren't the answer, we're the problem. But Jesus has come and given himself to us and he's coming again. I wanna invite you to pray with me what's been called the Jesus Prayer. A prayer that shapes the hearts, souls, and imagination of disciples of Jesus that we could become the kind of people who are the first to confess our sins. Pray this with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.